Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. The word of God speaks to us. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do you not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is too much if we, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the spiritual offerings, sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Hey, good morning. Just can grab a seat. Paul is spicy in this text, didn't he? He is not very happy. Uh, Well, we're going to get into it in a minute. I'm really excited to jump in. Uh, Hey, welcome. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Maybe you're here today and you're not really sure where you're at with Christianity, church, Jesus, any of it. Uh, It's an honor for us to be in your presence. It's an honor for you to be with us. 
There's no question that you could ask that's off limits. Uh, we don't pretend to have all the answers, but we, are, we love that you're here. So just feel free to engage. Feel free to ask questions along the way, or we'd love to meet you after the service. Um, hey, just a few questions that we get asked a lot is like, hey, why does Frontline do so many written prayers or prayers that we recite together, prayers that are on the screen, what historically has been called liturgical prayers? Why do we do that? Is that like a denominational thing for us or what? And the quick answer is no, it's not. It's actually a historical church thing for us. If you look at the early church all the way from its very beginning, its inception, they had moments where they'd gather on a Sunday and they would pray prayers together. They would recite things together. This is not a new thing. This is actually a very, very ancient old thing. And we believe that what we do on Sundays has a shaping influence on your life. We're actually trying to teach you how to pray. We're, having, we're, we're trying to teach you how to confess sin before God, how to receive the assurance, how to hold your money uh, loosely and be generous people before the living God, how to serve one another. Like That's why we do all the things that we do on Sundays, because six days between Sundays, we're also being shaped and we're also being formed, but to love what the world loves and to chase what the world is chasing. So we do these things not because of a denominational thing. This is just like to say, hey, we want to be historic. We want to be ancient. We want what we do to recognize that the Holy Spirit has been at work in the church for 2,000 years. Amen? So that's why we do what we do. And uh, man, I'm stoked. I'm stoked to jump into this passage. So if you have your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We've, we have one under the seat in front of you somewhere. The words are going to be on the screen. By the way, if you own a Bible, feel free to bring that. I would encourage you to bring that. That way you can check my math and make sure that what I'm saying is actually biblical and you're not just trusting what we throw up on our screen, okay? So with that in mind, let's jump in. You guys ready? It's not very convincing, but we're going to do it. All right, here we go. Let me pray. Thank you for this text. Father, thank you for the, the fact that you want to shape your people, the fact that you loved us when we were dead, you made us alive, and now you haven't just abandoned us, but you're walking with us, you're shaping us. So I pray today that you would do that. I pray for humility for myself and my friends, all the ways that this text today has been um, a struggle for my own heart. And all the ways this text is going to be a struggle for our hearts today. Would you just give us receptivity to your word? And for my friends that are in the room that don't know where they stand with any of this, I pray that you would speak to them and meet them in power. We love you. We are grateful for the word of God. We want to sit under the word of God. We want to receive it today. I pray these things in your name. Amen. In July of 1776, Thomas Jefferson penned these famous well-known words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. The founding of our country is based on the concept of owning your rights. In 1948, the United Nations Committee, it was a committee of 18 people. It was chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, wrote up 
and drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, this is a really important document that basically details out the basic human rights of all people. And it was specific to the UN, but has gone on to be translated in over 500 different languages. And even to this day still is adopted by nation and people after people. In 1966, the Miranda rights were established, which as you know, is a set of rights that has to be read before criminal suspect is interrogated by legal authorities. And in the decades since that time, in 1966, the emphasis on rights, on human rights, and rights activist groups has continued and continued and continued. Even to this very day, this very week, you've heard things in the news about the rights of this group or the rights of that group. This is just common and everyday reality for us as Americans. And, and honestly, to be, to be honest, much of the focus and emphasis on human rights has been profoundly good. And I would even argue that much of the focus on human rights has its basis, its foundation in the, the tree of the, of the scriptures, that we actually see in scripture a value for human dignity, that God created all people, men and women, rich and poor, no matter your ethnicity, your culture, your background, how, how much money you make, whatever you do for a living, you have inherent value and dignity and worth. And that's been a beautiful thing that Christians have held to that's actually shaped much of our Western values as a society. So that's not wrong. That's not bad. But let me just make an observation for you as a pastor. I think, I think that in the church, we're missing half of the equation. In other words, I think that as Christians, most of us have a grid, a category for defending the rights of the voiceless, right? Fighting for the poor, and the widow, and the orphan, and the voiceless in our culture. Like, we have a value as Christians. And if you don't have a value as Christians for fighting for the rights of the truly vulnerable in our society, and we have to define that carefully, but the truly vulnerable in our society, you should have. You should have a value for that. So that's good, but the half of the equation that I think we're missing is in all of the talk, in all of the American culture about defending the rights of others, there's very little, if ever, any talk about laying down your rights for the good of other people. It's just totally absent in most conversations when it comes to rights. If we talk about rights at all, it's usually what I owe or what I'm owed, what I deserve, and what's mine to have, right? Paul wants to change that both in the Corinthians and in us. And this is where you and I are far more like the Corinthian church than we want to be. And Paul's gonna work hard in this chapter to actually give us a different paradigm around this idea of what our rights are, of what we are owed, and what we deserve. Now, let me give you some context just to catch you up to speed if you're just jumping in with this. Uh, the context here in chapter 9 is really Paul dealing with two problems in Corinth, right? That, by the way, the whole letter is Paul dealing with problems in Corinth, but the problems keep changing. So here are the two new problems that Paul is dealing with in Corinth. The first one is a growing skepticism about the Apostle Paul and his role. The church was starting to get really skeptical about Paul and specifically about how much authority Paul should be wielding over them. And by the way, you only ask that question, you only get skeptical about authority over you when you disagree with them and when they start saying things that you don't like. And then you're like, who are you anyway? And where'd you get your credentials, right? That's sort of what's happening with the Corinthian church. They're like, hey, Paul, you're weird. Everything about you is weird. You're claiming to be an apostle. You're claiming to be a, a powerful spiritual leader. But when you show up, you look sort of weak and small and frail. 
and you write these big, bold letters, but when you're with us, you're sort of timid. And by the way, all the other apostles are married. You're single. That's a little bit weird. Why are you single, right? Like, it's cool if you're single for a little bit. You've been single a little bit too long. What's going on there? Is there a story we need to understand? And they just start critiquing Paul like crazy. And then as Paul starts to wield even more influence and authority over the church, they're going, we don't even know if you're really an apostle, actually. Like, are you even really an apostle? This is what's happening, and Paul had caught wind of this, so that's one of the problems that in chapter 9 he's going to address. The second problem that he's dealing with is a self-absorbed concern for their own rights. That in addition to being skeptical about Paul, behind their skepticism was really a self-absorbed concern for their own rights. Now remember, the content of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 flows out of the context of chapter 8. And what we see happening in the context of chapter 8 is that the, the Corinthians have drifted back into paganism as Christians, and that these Corinthians are starting to visit pagan temples. Many of them are uh, eating meat that was sacrificed to other false gods inside of pagan temples. And so Paul was addressing that concern with them, and their response was to say, hey man, we, we actually have a defense for why we do this. Like we, This is our right to eat the meat sacrificed in these temples. Who are you, by the way, to call my rights into question? And they were clinging to their right to do something illegitimate. They were actually holding up this value to continue to go to pagan temples and eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. That was causing all kinds of havoc, havoc in the church, and they didn't care about it. They were only concerned with their rights. And so essentially, these two problems are merging together and sounded something like this. Hey, Paul, we have a right to go to the pagan temples. And by the way, who are you anyway to question our rights? Who are you, by the way, and do you even have authority? Are you even really an apostle? And so with that in mind, Paul's going to weave brilliantly those two problems together and what he says in the entire chapter 9. So with that in mind, let's jump in. Chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what he does. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Four things that I want you to see, all of them start with R, so you're welcome. Or, or I'm sorry, I don't know which, what you like with your sermon outlines, but they all start with R today. So here's the first thing I want you to see is Paul's role. Now, what I love about this is Paul is almost immediately coming in hot, isn't he? His blood pressure's a bit elevated. In chapter eight, he was like sort of calm. By the time we get to chapter nine, Paul's not happy. He's pretty angry. And he asks 17 questions, all of them rhetorical, in 13 verses. If you ever are around someone that is asking 17 rhetorical questions in a short amount of time, it's because they're mad, and they're mad at you. And, and that's what he's trying to communicate here is like anger, intensity, rah, right? This is Paul like elevated in his tone, so you need to read it that way. This is not Paul being kind. This is Paul being clear and Paul trying to make a point. So right here alone, we've got four rhetorical questions, and they're all about his role. And he's saying, hey, just in case you forgot, I'm free. And just in case you forgot, I'm actually an apostle. And also just in case you forgot, 
Jesus himself literally showed up to me and told me to do this. So if you're questioning my authority, just remember that this wasn't my idea. Jesus came to me. He kicked me off my, my horse. He told me that I was going to be an apostle. Oh, and by the way, I planted this church, so that should mean something to you. I planted this church, and if, if my apostleship is illegitimate, then your whole faith is illegitimate too. That's kind of his line. Paul is rah, about his role. Now, one thing that you need to know before we work too far off of this text here is just a brief note on this idea of apostles. Uh, there's, there's a really unhelpful idea that gets thrown out again and again and again about apostles in church context that says something to the effect of, well, to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Jesus. You can't be an apostle if you didn't see the risen Jesus. Well, that, that's actually not entirely true. Um, you had uh, many, many people who saw the risen Jesus, in fact, 500 at one time, and were not apostles, right? So just seeing the risen Jesus doesn't automatically make you an apostle. And in addition to that, we have record of other apostles outside of the 12, guys like Barnabas and, and Apollos, who functioned as apostles that we have zero record of them ever seeing the resurrected Jesus. And chances are they were even born sometime after that. So let me just briefly give you the, the ways that the New Testament uses this word apostle. This is free, it's extra, but I think it's helpful. Category one, Jesus. He's referred to in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, as the apostle of our confession, right? Category 2 is the 12. This is a special, unrepeatable group. Uh, th these are a group of guys that were hand-selected by Jesus, and in fact, to be inside of this unrepeatable, really interesting group of apostles, you had to not just see the resurrected Jesus alive, you had to actually be there at his baptism, and observe his entirely earthly life and ministry, his death, and his resurrection. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, when Judas dies, and they replace Judas with a guy named Matthias, and he becomes a part of the twelve. The twelve is an unrepeatable, unique group of apostles, and when they died, there's no more. They were a unique group. Category three, the New Testament uses the word apostle to refer to translocal movement leaders. I would argue this is guys like Paul, although Paul's interesting. He's got one foot sort of in category two, one foot in category three. It's hard to know where he fits. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll make a comment about that, like I'm as though one untimely born, right? Category three, though, is guys like Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, and on and on. These are men who planted churches and would go on to having, having a fathering influence over the churches that they planted and had invited authority with those churches, though they were not elders at the church. So Paul's not an elder at Corinth, but Corinth is in crisis, and as a father cares for children that even graduate and move out of, his, out of his house, Paul is showing up to Corinth, and he's wielding a measure of fathering influence and invited authority. That's category three. Does that make sense? And then category four is when the word apostle is used in a non-technical non sense, as messenger or sent one. Anytime you send someone on an errand, if I have my son Bear go tell the, his sisters to get ready, Bear is an apostle to his sisters in that moment in a non-technical use of the word. Now, here's Paul's point. That's just nerdy and extra. I just want to clear that up real quick. Here, here's the point that Paul's making here about his role. He's saying, you guys are doubting me. Just remember I planted the church. You guys are questioning me. Just remember that your very faith is evidence that Jesus called me to do this. You're wondering if there's anything to my authority. Just remember that it was Jesus himself 
who hand-selected me to do it. He's not being arrogant. He's owning his authority here, saying, I'm an apostle. This is my role. And that leads me to the second point that I want you to see, which is Paul's rights. Paul's rights. Let's keep working through the text. Look at verse 3. This is my defense to those who had examined me. That's what they're doing. They're examining Paul. They're sitting in judgment over Paul. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Jesus' biological brothers, Cephas is Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I love that Paul says, here's my defense. And then he just asks a bunch of questions, right? What a defense. Here's what I love about this is he uses these metaphors of soldier, farmer, and shepherd, which in Paul, those are like his favorite ones to go to. When Paul thinks about what it is to be a pastor or to be a ministry leader or to have an office in the church, those are some shaping metaphors for Paul. I wish I could preach a whole sermon about the importance of leaders in the church being soldiers and farmers and shepherds, but we don't have time. Paul's point here is obvious. He's saying, hey, nobody would judge a soldier for getting paid to be a soldier. No one would judge a farmer for planting a, a vineyard and then you know, snacking once it's harvest time as he's grabbing all the stuff that he just planted. No one would judge a farmer for that. It's his right. It's his farm. He has the right to eat what he's farming. Nobody would judge a shepherd for having cattle and then getting milk from their cattle. Like That's just a normal thing that shepherds are allowed to do. These are obvious benefits that come with the job, is what Paul's saying. Keep going. Look at verse 8. It says, Do I say these on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, now he's going to quote from the Torah, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Just pause here. Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, which is this really interesting, bizarre text about uh, oxen and oxen having this tool that they would strap to their backs and they would go back and forth, back and forth over the threshing floor. And that tool would essentially tear up the grain. It would cause the, the kernels to release from the stalk. I'm talking as if I know what I'm talking about. I have no idea anything about that. This is just stuff that I've read, okay? So it, it, would, it would release the grain from the stalk. And God literally saw that and he gave a command about it. It's fascinating. Hey, don't muzzle the ox when it does that job. In other words, don't cover the ox's mouth so it can't eat on the kernels that it's threshing. Like, let, ha, have some mercy and kindness on this big dumb animal, right? And Paul's point is, do you think that God ultimately just cares about big dumb animals? Do you think like that's his pinnacle of concern is oxen? He's saying, no, if God even cares about oxen being to eat from their labor, certainly he also cares about pastors getting provided for as they're planting and doing ministry with the people of God. You see his point. He's saying certainly God doesn't just care about oxen, he also cares about pastors. Keep going. Look at verse 13. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? 
In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul now pulls from Old Testament imagery about priests serving in the the temple and even in pagan priests and pagan temples, what would happen is those priests that would serve there would eat the food that people would bring in and sacrifice. They had their livelihood. It was a benefit of working in the temples that you got to eat the food that was provided there through sacrifices. And then he quotes Jesus in Luke 10, verse 7, where Jesus sends out 72 workers in the harvest, and there's this weird line at the end where Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. And Paul's saying, that's about pastors and ministry. This is why we pay pastors. Now, let me just pause here and just say, this is actually one of the most important texts that we have in the New Testament for why Frontline pays they're full-time pastors, right? Now, there's other texts that we could look at in Scripture that also are going to give us this argument, but this is one of the most important for why you should actually pay your pastors. Now, has this text been absolutely abused and misused and taken out of context and used by a guy standing in front of a jet, you know, with golden cufflinks and by prosperity, weird gospel preachers? Yes, Yes, it has. And there is a special place in hell for those guys, right? Like they are, here's what's, like you think I'm joking, I'm actually not. What what they're doing is taking a text that's beautiful and meaningful and they've totally flipped it on its head, totally upside down. They're ruining the context of what Paul is saying here and Jesus will have words with those guys. He will have words with those guys. That's not what this text is about. So yeah, it's been abused. Yeah, it's been misused. But just to say, this is why Frontline pays full-time pastors. Now, we work hard. We've got a finance council that is uh, comprised of people that don't work for the church, that don't get any money for the church, and they're the ones that over that view and, and speak into all the salaries that we have. We work really hard to not overpay our pastors, but also to not underpay our pastors. We take into account other churches all over the U.S. and churches in Oklahoma that are similar to our size, and we try to figure out what is a just wage for our pastors. So this is one of those texts that, that try to drive at that. But, but friends, that's actually not the point of the text. That's not the point of the text. So what is, point, what is Paul's point up to this verse so far? Why is, why is Paul asking all these rhetorical questions? Well, here's Paul's point. Paul deserves to be paid. Paul is owed a salary. It is Paul's right, and it's crystal clear that it's his right from all kinds of angles. It's his right because if you just factor in human analogies, soldiers, shepherds, farmers, it's his right because the Old Testament law says so. It's his right because the temple structure, both in the Old Testament and in Corinth, pagan temples at the time, this was the structure. And it's his right because Jesus explicitly said so in in Luke 10, verse 7. So what's Paul's point? Why is Paul spending 14 verses driving home, hey guys, it's my right that you pay me. I'm owed this. I deserve this. That's what Paul's saying. Why? Well, here's what's really crazy. If that's all clear in your mind now, then now you're ready for the punchline. Now you're ready for the shocking turn because what Paul does here blows my mind. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then keep reading. Look at verse 15. 
but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. The third thing I want you to see is Paul's relinquishment of his rights. Paul has been driving home for 14 verses, this is my right. This is what I'm owed. This is what I deserve. And right as he builds his full case where you're like, got it, done. I believe you, Paul. You are owed this. That is your right. Right when he gets you there, he flips it and he goes, oh, and by the way, I've relinquished all my rights. And I'm not saying this to guilt you. I'm not even saying this so that you'll start paying me. In fact, I would rather die than get paid for doing this ministry. Why? Why would Paul say that? Well, he gives us at least two explicit reasons for why he wants to do his ministry without getting paid. Here's the first one in verse 12, the second half of verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. Why? But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Christ. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you see Paul's bigger point here? He's saying, Corinthians, in chapter 8, you are so obsessed with your rights. You're so obsessed with what you deserve, what you're owed, that you're wanting to do an illegitimate thing, like go to pagan temples and eat meat sacrificed to idols and not care at all about how that puts obstacles in the way of the gospel of Christ. And I want you to know that I deserve, I'm owed, it's my right to get paid And I'd rather not have any of it. I'd rather relinquish all my rights if it means that I cannot put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, here's what I love about Paul is that Paul is obsessed with Jesus and the gospel. The Corinthians, their problem is they were obsessed with their rights. Paul's obsessed with Jesus and the gospel. And here's the the, the reality, love it or hate it, this is true of every person in this room. What you are obsessed with, what you love the most, what you desire the most, you will sacrifice for. You will. You'll sacrifice everything for it. The Corinthians loved them and their rights, so much so that they sacrificed brotherly and sisterly love to get what they were obsessed for. Paul, obsessed with Jesus and the gospel, and he's willing to sacrifice his legitimate rights to lay them down so that he can get what he wants. How amazing is that? The second reason Paul gives us for laying down these rights is this. Look at verse 18. What then is my reward? Literally in Greek, What's my, what is my uh, payment? What, what do I get out of the deal, right? What then is my reward? Here's his reward. That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. I love Paul. Here's why. Because Paul is so enamored with the gospel. He's so obsessed with the gospel. The the gospel is what he's built his whole life around that he's starting to find ways to, in a human way, live out various analogies of the gospel itself. And Paul one day sitting there, and it's like a light bulb moment. I don't know when this happened in his ministry, but he had this light bulb moment where he was like, hey, do you know what's really powerful? Preaching a free gospel for free. Do you know what's really powerful? I did not get what I deserve, which is the wrath of God. Jesus took what I deserved, so I want to give you something that you don't deserve because this shows the grace of God in the gospel. Do you know what's really powerful? Is preaching a gospel that sets people free and not charging them for it. 
Paul loves this. It's like his mind is just getting blown again about how can I display the gospel? How can I display my love and affection, devotion to Jesus with the ways that I do ministry? This is unbelievably powerful. And that's what I hope for, for myself, for my family, for you as our church. What I long for, for us to have is a cruciform way of life shaped by, formed by the cross of Christ, where that starts to affect and give us creativity for how we live and how we relate to all things in the world, including our own rights. And all that leads me to the last thing that I want you to see, which is our response. What are we to do with this passage? our response. Typically, this whole passage is often preached as, so pay your pastors. And that's, that's the application. I kind of feel like that's really not Paul's point. He, he made that case to then turn and make another point. So what's our response? What's here for you and I? What do we do with this? Well, I want you to think about these diagnostic questions for just a moment so that you can apply this to your own heart for a minute. Here's the first one. What is it that you want most in life? What is it that you want most in life? What are you gripped by? What are you chasing? Maybe another way to ask it, what are you saving for? There's something that you want. There's something that you long for. There's something that you're hoping for. There's something that you're after. There's something that you're committed to. You're chasing. You, you, you want it. What is that thing? Here's the second one. What are you owed? What is it that you deserve? I'm not talking about wanting illegitimate things. I'm saying, what are the things that you want that you're actually owed? You're des- you deserve it. It's your right to have. What are those things? Now, here's what I want you to see. Both Paul and the Corinthians are headed on two diverging paths when it comes to their rights. The Corinthians are obsessed with their rights and what they're owed because they're gripped by love for themselves. Paul, on the other hand, headed in a very different path is obsessed with laying down his rights and relinquishing what he's owed because he's gripped by the love of Jesus. The Corinthians, they're careless and they're selfishly pursuing things that are erecting obstacles in the way of Christ. I I can go to temples. I can eat pagan meat. I can do all these. I can live the way I used to. It doesn't matter. It's my right. They're careless and selfishly pursuing things that are putting obstacles in the way of Christ. Paul is thoughtful and selfishly pursuing things that are tearing down obstacles in the way of Christ. The Corinthians increasingly are headed down a path that's looking more and more and more like the world, clinging to the rights, my rights, I'm owed this, I deserve this. Paul headed down a very different path, looking more and more like Jesus, who laid down his rights for us. And the question is, which of these two paths are you going to choose? Which of these two paths are you going to walk down? Or maybe a better, more pointed question, which of these two paths are you currently on? Are you headed down the Corinthian path or are you headed down the Apostle Paul's path? Here's my prayer for Frontline. My prayer for our church is that we would regain a positive gospel vision for how to lay down our rights. Let me apply it like this. To the person in the room who's retiring, hey man, you've worked hard. You've made dozens of sacrifices You have said no to hundreds of different things and you have achieved the place in life that you are. It's owed you. You deserve to retire. You deserve to chill out. What would it look like to lay down your time and instead invest in the lives of your kids if you have them, your grandkids if you have them, the younger generation, finding newly married couples, bringing them into your life, uh, finding singles in our church, pouring into them. What would it look like for you to lay down your right 
of a cush retirement life and spend it for the sake of the gospel? What would that look like? To those of you who are financially well off, man, you've saved, you've been frugal, you've said no in a bunch of different ways so that you can get to where you are. You have worked hard to get to the size of home that you have. It's your home. You earned it. You deserve it, one could say. You have special gifting to arrive at the place in life that you've arrived at. That's, that's great. Praise God for that. But what would it look like to lay down your right to have your home just for you? And you opened up an extra bedroom in your house for someone who's experiencing desperate, desperate need and needs a place to stay. What would that look like? School teachers in the room. Man, you're with kids all day long. Thank you, by the way. Somebody asked uh, this question to me yesterday. Uh, would you rather dig ditches all day long or work in a daycare all day long? I was like, ditches, 100%. Very easy, easiest question I've been asked my whole life, right? And I love kids. Ditches, I will dig ditches all day long, right? So teachers, thank you for all that you do. Your evenings and your weekends are literally your one chance to catch your breath, have some silence and solitude, have an adult conversation. You deserve a break, what would it look like to lay down your right for a break and serve in our student ministry on Wednesday nights or to be with kids on Sunday mornings in our elementary or nursery classrooms, holding babies, praying for them, showing them the way of Jesus, teaching them the gospel? I'm with kids all day long. You, don't, you deserve a break. What would it look like to lay your break down? To the person working 50 hours a week, you're exhausted. You barely have time to check your phone throughout the day. You're, you, we know you already care deeply about your family. That's why you work so hard. We're grateful for your labor. You deserve to rest. What would it look like if you came home after a long, grueling week and you pulled into your driveway and instead of walking in demanding rest, what if instead you prayed, Spirit, fill me, give me grace, and you walk into your room and you actually offer faithful presence to your family? What would that look like? That's laying down your rights. To the married couple with kids, man, life is hectic. Time is short. Your house is an absolute disaster, and you cleaned it like 15 minutes ago. What happened? I don't understand. It's crazy. Your margin is low. You have all the right in the world to just hide away and survive the season out. What would it look like to lay down your right for a chill night at home? and instead creatively rework your rhythms and priorities around hosting people around gospel community? What would that look like? You get a bonus at work. It's your bonus, man. You, you earned it. You deserve it. There's something you want. There's a hobby you have. There's something you've been saving for. You deserve it. It's your right. Spend it how you want. What would it look like to give away your bonus that is your right to someone in your life that's experiencing financial hardship? Friends, we could go on and on and on and apply this in a hundred different ways, but here's the point. This is where this text hits home with us. We are far more like the Corinthians than we dare ever believe. At the end of the day, I'm so often obsessed with me and what I deserve, what is my right, what is owed to me, and the way of Jesus is just different. The way of Jesus is just different. It's getting gospel creativity around how to lay down what I'm owed for the sake of the gospel and the good of the people around me. Now, with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand with me.